It's Old Timey Crimey. I'm Christy. And I'm Amber. Uh, we are here to bring you some historical true crime this week. Pretty heavy on the history, less on the crime for like 50% of the country during the time period we're talking about. But the other 50% of the country-ish, uh, they probably thought of this person as a criminal. So it's interesting. Before we get started on that, don't forget about our Patreon. That is patreon.com slash oldtimeycrimey. And over there, we have four weekly bonus episodes. Those are our old tiny crimeys. They're not always, they range from like 15 minutes to 45 minutes. So it's, it's you never know what you're going to get. It's a grab bag. And this week, I told Amber and Scott about a local story, the Lost Children of the Alleghenies. And it was very, they already knew about it. But I think I probably told you a couple things you didn't know. One or two. <laughs> I know. Uh, actually, ironically, I was just reading an article about the Lost Children of Allegheny like less than a month ago. Damn. <laughs> damn, damn, damn. So anyhow, I told them a thing they already knew about, but it was interesting. And then we finished up by reading our horoscopes from 1948. And apparently I'm going to get executed. So this is my last day on Earth. So go check that out. We also have our extra, extra, our monthly bonus episode where we do something a little different. You can have that over there for just five bucks a month. And we'll also give you a shout out at the end of the episode. So uh, we will, it's your choice. Uh, I'll sing it. Uh, there could be some uh, erotic moaning or screaming. You just, just name, name your desire. It's, uh, that's kind of creepy. Uh, so let's get weird. <laughs> let's get weird. So yeah, but we are going to talk about our main case this week, which is Elizabeth Van Loo. Now, I said earlier that, like, 50% of the country probably considered it a criminal and 50% didn't. Uh, this is a... We're talking about during the Civil War, so that whole 50-50 thing might have tipped you off about that. I should know that I looked up the populations during this time period, and in the Union, there were 18.5 citizens, and in the Confederacy, there were 5.5 free citizens and 3.5 enslaved citizens. So it wasn't quite 50-50. <laughs> So yes, Elizabeth Van Loo was born in 1818, and the abolitionist cause really ran through her, her bloodstream. Her maternal great-grandfather had been a big-time abolitionist even in the 1700s, and he had even been the mayor of Philadelphia. Her father was a prominent businessman in Richmond, Virginia, he had a hardware store that apparently did really good business. I guess a lot of people needed, like, hammers and stuff. And so Elizabeth was one of three children. She was said to be the most stubborn of the three and also said to be an attractive young lady with dark hair and light blue eyes. So I do have another description of her. Who They described her as brilliant, clever, and acid-tongued. I, I love like being an acid-tongued <laughs> woman. I love it. So, yeah, she became a socialite as she came of age. And when she was home in Richmond, she would meet, you know, luminaries like Edgar Allan Poe, Chief Justice John Marshall. Her home was, was one of the, the homes where any, any important people passing through town, they were going to come through there. And Poe, he was, you know, kind of in that area anyhow. So she went to a Quaker school in Philadelphia, and that kind of bumped up the abolitionist leanings, as it would. Her father wasn't quite on board with the abolitionist stuff, and she was... I did kind of sense this uh, before I read it. It was kind of funny because I was like, oh, her, her father died, and then they immediately tried to release all the slaves. There must not have been, like, agreement on that. And then another article was like, yeah, she was always asking him, you know, can we please free the slaves? Can we please free our slaves? Because the family did have them. They had a small farm. They had their home. And he was like, nah. Nah, so the, that must have been one tense household. I can't imagine. I I can't. Like, I actually have a quote from her diary. Oh, good. No pen, no book, no time can do justice to slavery's wrongs, its horrors. Yeah, she was very much, I have a, I have a couple quotes here and there from her uh, that we'll get to. She was very much passionate about this. And, uh, but she didn't like to be called fanatical. She didn't actually like to be called an abolitionist because she felt that abolitionists were fanatical. And she was like, I'm not fanatical. I just think it's like nice and normal to want people to be free. Like, I don't think that's fanaticism, which she has a point. But as I said, the family did have slaves up until 1843. Her father died then. She was 25. 
And after that, they did everything they could to set the slaves free. Now, here's the thing. To legally do this was difficult. Nat Turner's rebellion in 1831 had caused some attempts to close any loopholes that might actually allow people to set slaves free. It's kind of crazy that they were like, you have the freedom to own slaves, but you don't have the freedom to decide you don't want to own slaves anymore. So sorry about that. And so they made what they called manumission, which was setting a slave free, really difficult after that. Uh, it was nearly impossible in Virginia. In some states, like I believe in Florida, it was actually just flat out impossible. You just couldn't. You outright couldn't free a slave. Uh, so she just kind of went about it in a less official manner. She got the their former slaves set up so that they could manage their own affairs. She'd gotten $10,000 in inheritance from her father. That's around $375,000 today. And she spent a lot of this money on taking care of the family's former slaves. Some of them did leave immediately, but a lot of them stayed on as servants. So they actually earned, you know, money as you should be doing when people are performing labor for you. And so Elizabeth, she, she went even further. She had freed slaves, but those freed slaves, now servants, had relatives, of course, who were slaves and who they'd been separated from. So she spent pretty much all of her inheritance on this cause. She would basically buy the relatives of these former slaves and then set them free. She and her brother would go to slave auctions, buy entire families if they were going to be split up so that the families would stay intact and then free them. So she was spending all the money there. The thing is, is that Local authorities, because of the whole manumission is really hard to pull off thing, still treated the released slaves as slaves and essentially would arrest them for not having the right paperwork. This is from the Richmond Dispatch in April 1861, which was, the date was five days after the Civil War broke out. Yesterday, Anderson, slave of E.L. Van Loo, was committed to jail for having a pass out of date and going at large. Even when you're free, you're not free. And uh, here's another quote from her that she wrote, Slave power crushes freedom of speech and of opinion. Slave power degrades labor. Slave power is arrogant, is jealous and intrusive, is cruel, is despotic. I think some of that was actually in yours, maybe. Okay, I can't remember. Um, so yeah, she was very, very passionate about this. Even before the Civil War started, you kind of get this idea from her actions that she really started on the what would become her intelligence gathering when the Civil War started. No, before that, she was seeing all the secessionist rumblings around town. And so she would just sit down and write a letter to the State Department and be like, hey, people are talking around here. They're talking about, you know, this, that, and the other thing that they're going to try to do to try to subvert, you know, the cause of abolition and everything. So maybe you should pay attention. And uh, they probably didn't because, you know, she, she, she had boobs. You know what, they're like, that's that's around still today when I tell people at work that there's a problem. What the fuck do I know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, so it's then I just sit today. back and watch the world burn. There you go. That, that wasn't what Van Loo did, but that's another way of approaching it. And and you really, like, uh, actually, I could see you doing some espionage, but I, I don't see that as being a, a good thing in a corporate setting because <laughs> they have a word for that. It's corporate espionage. Yes. <laughs> so, see, so yeah, she would kind of be like warning, sending out the warning bell. She was the canary in the coal mine. And so when the Civil War broke out in 1861, she was 43, living with her mother in Richmond, Virginia. And that was the capital of the Confederacy. She had her ear to the ground in the right place. In Richmond, they had a three-story mansion and, as I mentioned earlier, a farm. And at this time, when everything was ramping up for the Civil War, the local women were all banding together to make clothes for the Confederate soldiers. They invited the Van Loo ladies to help out, to which they were like, uh, no thanks. We're really busy over here. I've, I've just got a lot going on this week. I mean, catch me next week and maybe, but you know, I'm going to have to check my schedule. People didn't really take well to that, and the Van Loo ladies said, fine, we'll take Bibles to the soldiers. The first Battle of Bull Run near Manassas, Virginia, took place in July 1861, and the Confederates took prisoners of Union soldiers there. 
Now, they brought them back to Richmond, and they put them in a tobacco warehouse now known as Libby Prison. It was pretty, became pretty well known for some pretty not great reasons. The reason they chose it, it was the only building in the area with running water, so it did have that at least. Yeah, there it, you go. It had like some early like flush toilets kind of even, so there's something, but... Fancy. Very fancy. There were, uh, other stuff was not so great. Terrible conditions, overcrowding happened very quickly. Even 1,000 prisoners was considered overcrowded. By 1863, there were over 4,000 held there. 3,000 over the max capacity. This was an average of 400 per room, and the rooms were about 45 feet by 103 feet. Literally, they had to sleep spoon fashion, alternating like head to foot on the floor. And then apparently the, the, the way that this worked was the highest ranking man would yell spoon over every so often and everybody would roll over in a coordinated fashion. There, there's actually a song I sing to my kids about that. Really? Yes. What? <laughs> No. I, I sing a song to my kids about that. It's like there were five on the bed and the little one said, roll over, oh roll my over. Oh, my God, I remember that. And they that. all roll over and one falls out. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I wonder, I wonder if that's the origin. Who knows? I oh. still sing that to the kids and they laugh every time. So I'm, I had forgotten all about that song. Like, And I remember, I think my mom sang it to me or we sang it as kids, something like that. Wow, that's... So rations were short and they kept getting shorter. By 1863, each prisoner got a few ounces of meat, a half pound of bread, and a little cup with beans or rice in it, and that was to last you the whole day. And then after that, meat started cutting, being cut out of the rations, and they mostly got cornbread and sweet potatoes. So not a lot of sustenance. It was so hot in the summer, think about it, you know, Richmond, Virginia, summertime, They'd broken half the windows to get some air, but then those windows weren't replaced in the winter, so they had to deal with the freezing cold. And of course, there was lice, smallpox, other pests and diseases. You had about two to three deaths per day, which is pretty rough. Now, like I said, there were things that were okay, like the flush toilets. They had chess tournaments, and they had the Libby Prison Chronicle, a prison newspaper. The second issue featured this poem. Oh, no. Yes, it's, it's very, it's very oh no, but it's also quite, uh, it's kind of clever in its way. We have 18 kinds of food, though twill stagger your belief, because we have bread, beef, and soup, then bread, soup, and beef. Then we separate round with about 20 in a group, and thus we get beef, soup, and bread, and beef, bread, and soup. For dessert we obtain, though it costs us nary red, soup, bread, and beef, count it well, and beef, and soup, and bread." really gives you an idea of the monotony of the rations. <laughs> and so this was just a few blocks from the Van Loo house. It was about a half mile walk. Now, Elizabeth Van Loo, when all the Union soldiers were, were brought there, she tried to become a nurse there. But the commandant, who, by the way, was Mary Todd Lincoln's half-brother? David H. Todd. Yes. <laughs> Talk about some family division there. Oh, that must have been an awkward Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure they did not spend that Christmas together, what with them being on very opposite sides. He said no, so she just went up the chain of command until she got to General Winder. He was the Assistant Inspectant General of the Camps of Instruction in Richmond, and just try fitting that on a business card. <laughs> you got to really scale down that font. And uh, she got permission from him to at least bring aid to the prisoners. Uh, and this this was a man, by the way, who within a few years would become known as the dictator of Richmond. So uh, she had some charm. She really had charm, and she used that a lot. And now she did kind of smooth things over with the commandant of the prison after that because she would bring him little treats like buttermilk and gingerbread. She knew she knew how to do it. She knew how to do it through the stomach. <laughs> through the stomach. <laughs> So Van Loo and her mother took bedding, clothing, books, stationary medicine, and food to the prisoners regularly and uh, slowly started getting information out of the prisoners through that. Now, the, the thing was is that there were tons of Confederate soldiers and officers around guarding, doing other duties, 
And they, they talked a lot. And the, the prisoners overheard this. And so they would have information. Elizabeth Van Loo even got on the guards' good side. And so uh, the locals did what they knew is they knew that she was bringing aid to the prisoners, but they didn't know she was taking information back out. So she'd bring a book and leave with information. And we have some, later I'll get to uh, her methods here because there's some really fun stuff there. Oh my gosh. But the locals did not take direct action against her. They did publicize, not with direct names, but everybody in town would know, publicize her actions in July 1861 in the Richmond Examiner, the same month that the prison was starting to fill up. Now, this is a long quote, but I want to do it with my best um, Southern gentleman <laughs> accent. If that won't bother you too much, we might lose some listeners. I'm interested because I have a quote from the Richmond Inquirer. Interesting. And so I'm, I'm interested to see if these are the same quote. Okay. All right. It's possible with what we've seen from newspapers, how they would just like copy each other's copy, essentially. We might lose some listeners, including my husband. He's not a big fan of Southern accents. So I know what I'm getting into. And this is, like I said, a long quote, so I might lose it halfway through, but I'll do my best. I did practice it once. Southern women with northern sympathies. Two ladies, mother and daughter, living on Church Hill, have lately attracted public notice by their assiduous attentions to the Yankee prisoners confined in this city. Whilst every true woman in this community has been busy making articles of comfort or necessity for our troops, or administering to the wants of the many hundreds of sick, these two women have been expending their opulent means in aiding and giving comfort to the miscreants who have invaded our sacred soil, bent on raping and murder, the desolation of our homes and sacred places, and the ruin and dishonor of our families. Out upon all pretexts of humanity, our own poor fellows have been stricken down while battling for our country and our rights. The Yankee wounded have been put under charge of competent surgeons and provided with good nurses. This is more than they deserve and have any right to expect. And the course of these two females, in providing them with delicacies, buying them books, stationery, and papers, cannot but be regarded as evidence of sympathy, amounting to an endorsation of the cause and conduct of these northern vandals. So that's my best uh, southern plantation owner accent. <laughs> <laughs> it was hard to keep up. That took a lot out of me, I'm not going to lie. Probably not going to do it again. I will probably just read every quote here on, even if it's from like a Richmond newspaper or whatever, just flat out in a normal voice. <laughs> so it started out the same, but mine Ooh. has the ellipses and it's much, much shorter. So it was two ladies, a mother and a daughter, living on Churchill, have lately attracted public notice by their assiduous attentions to the Yankee prisoners. Dot, 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 dot. These two women have been expending their opulent means in aiding and giving comfort to the miscreants who have invaded our sacred soil. That was that was all of my quotes. So it was a much shorter version of yours. Interestingly, I even cut some out <laughs> of the original. <laughs> so, so what we learned at the Richmond Inquirer just stole from your paper. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly it. Definitely it. Yeah. I guess the examiner could have uh, stolen from the Inquirer and puffed it up a bit, but the voice seems to be yeah. consistent throughout, it, 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 the voice being my accent. Um, so in April 1862, uh, Louis Francis, a Union soldier who'd been wounded then captured, spent some time at Libby Prison, and he testified before the Joint Committee on the Conduct of War. At Richmond, whilst in the General Hospital, I was well fed. At the tobacco factory, I had a small amount of sour bread and tough, fresh beef. So hospital, good. Tobacco factory, which was the Libby prison, bad. I should have perished for want, but a lady named Van Lu sent her slave every other day with food and supplied me with clothing until January, when the officer in charge of the prison prevented her from sending me any more provisions. Now, this was something that happened often. There was a letter from the commanding officer of the Richmond prison written to her in February of the following year that requested she stop sending food to one ill soldier as he was, quote, now nearly well and they had abundant and palatable food. And so she started using this kind of inn that she had at the prison to get information about Confederate activities to people who needed it on the Union side. 
So she'd get information from the prisoners about Confederate troops, their strength, their numbers, movement plans, and then use a, a series of couriers to pass that on to General Grant and his intelligence officer. That's General Ulysses Grant. And another source of info, interestingly, from Harper's Monthly, clerks in the Confederate War and Navy departments were in her confidence. Counsel for Union sympathizers on trial by the Confederacy were employed by her money. So she had, she had a hand in a lot of different pots here. Another source she had was a woman named Mary Bowser, who may have actually been named Mary Richards Denman. So a little bit about her. She had been a slave born on the Van Loo Plantation in 1839. And after uh, being freed, she was sent to Philadelphia by Elizabeth Van Loo for education. She learned to read and write there before returning to the Van Loo household as a servant. And the thing was, keep in mind, there were generally in most places laws in place that said, you know, like no educating the slaves. You know, you can't teach a slave to read or write. Elizabeth Van Loo got Mary Bowser or Denman into the Confederate White House as a servant. So she's around like Jefferson Davis and his people. And they, of course, thought she was a slave, not a servant. And they, of course, didn't expect her to be able to read and write. So they would just talk openly about war stuff right in front of her. Davis and his cabinet, they would leave papers with important secret information lying around. And she gave that information then to Elizabeth Van Loo, who passed it up to General Ulysses S. Grant. And a side note, after the war, she uh, may have given some lectures under a nom de plume. And I think this might be my favorite pseudonym I've ever read. Richmonia St. Pierre. It has, a, it has a ring to it. It does. It really does. So I think she has good taste in nom de plumes. She's kind of hard to trace through history, though, because she did use a lot of nom de plumes. But that also sort of points to the idea that she was a spy because she would do that. Yeah. And it well, and it. She wants to be hard to follow. If you're too easy to follow, you get caught. Exactly, exactly. So uh, Grant at one point said to Elizabeth Van Loo, you have sent me the most valuable information received from Richmond during the war. And some generals said that her espionage was worth 25,000 soldiers. But it was a little bit rough around town, you know. There were, there were locals who would threaten her family. This is from her diary. We had threats of being driven away, threats of fire, and threats of death. And then she also, of course, had the constant fear of the Confederacy figuring her out. I have another quote from that. I have had brave men shake their fingers in my face and say terrible things. Yes. <laughs> I could just see them wagging their fingers in her face, and I'm sure she had uh, an acid-tongued reaction to that. She had a response to this. She had a, a way of subverting this. She sort of ginned up a reputation for being the local eccentric, so people would have fewer reasons to suspect her. And it got to the point that they called her Crazy Van Lu or Crazy Bet, as in Bet short for Elizabeth. But, I mean, it was brilliant. So she would act dumb to divert suspicion. She would, she would, uh, she had this like whole false persona where she would just mumble nonsense to herself or make weird gestures or get easily distracted. So everyone's like, all right, whatever, crazy lady. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and she would like wander around looking all unkempt too, which you wouldn't expect somebody from high society to do. So that also like, she, she made them think that she was incapable of performing like espionage activities, which is brilliant. It is. It really is. <laughs> yeah. If the one thing, if your enemy thinks you're doing something, the best thing to do is make them think you're incapable of doing it and then they'll dismiss you. It's great. She had some really fun methods of moving information. Uh, invisible ink. Uh, baskets of eggs, but one egg would have its contents removed and replaced with information. So uh, the sole of a shoe hollowed out. Some Still done up until recently. <laughs> Yes, true. And she'd have like maybe a seamstress or even somebody just with a seamstress basket. And of course, a seamstress is going to have lots of complicated patterns. So when she's stopped by Confederate soldiers who want to look through her basket and they see these patterns where they're just going to flip through and ah, this means nothing to me. There you go. There's a good hiding place. Uh, a custard dish with a secret compartment. And there's a fun story about that. One of her favorite devices was a metal platter with a double bottom in which she used to pretend to convey food to the prisoners. 
At last, the suspicions of one Confederate soldier were aroused by the frequent appearance of this platter. I'll have to examine that, he said sharply. Take it, said Crazy Bet, and thrust it into his hands. She had watched him for days and had seen that he suspected her and had prepared an unpleasant surprise for him. That day, the false bottom contained no secret messages. It was filled with scalding hot water, and he dropped the pan with a yell of pain. <laughs> Smart lady. Love it. So uh, she, she got forbidden to talk to the prisoners because of all these suspicions, despite her attempts to subvert them. So she had to figure out a new method of communication. So she would bring in, continue bringing in books to the prisoners, but now the books had a nice new feature, a cipher guide for a cipher that, uh, as far as I can tell, she'd made up herself. Maybe she had help, I don't know. There, there's pictures of the cipher and everything, and we'll put that up on the social media. But yeah, she would put that in there as a key, and then they would use the key to poke holes in the letters of the book in order to basically convey a message. And then another method she had with books would she would bring a soldier a book with something underlined. That underlined bit would be the question she had to ask them. She would come back later, maybe the next day, collect the book. The soldier would have underlined something else, and that was the answer. So pretty, it's, it's really brilliant. It's several brilliant methods of espionage and gathering information secretly, which is really what espionage is. So... Um, she frequently sent servants, but when no one else was available, she had to do it herself. So she would, but she had to kind of get a little incognito. She would get dressed up as a farmer. Uh, she had a, a getup that was buckskin leggings, a one-piece skirt, and waist of cotton, and a huge calico sunbonnet. So at first I thought she was dressing up as a man, but the skirt and the sunbonnet bonnet kind of throw that off. And then she would hop on her horse and head out under cover of darkness to pass messages outside of town. But after that, of course, there's another wrinkle. The Confederate government was like, okay, we need all of our livestock for the army. She's like, damn it, I need that horse really badly. She got a little early word about it. She got a heads up. So she hid her horse in, in the library of the mansion. There you go. And then when they came... Nobody's going to look there. Nobody's going to look there. When they did come, uh, one account said that when they came to search her house for livestock, she hid the horse in her secret room. <laughs> so, but the horse uh, spent the rest of the, the wartime period in her house. I like to think in the library just for fun. Uh, only being taken out at night for missions. And so, oh my uh, God, that horse pooed all through her house. <laughs> well, here's the thing: she eventually had a house guest, and that was the uh, commandant of the of the prison. She invited him and his family to stay at her house. So she must have kept it somewhere else. They probably had grounds. They probably had a barn where, after the heat was off, she could put it in like the barn or something. But I or still like a dirt floor basement, like there you go, thing. a cellar. Yeah, I just I really like to think of that the horse in the library because that's the best imagery ever. It's the horse in the library. I just imagine it walking through the house during the day when no one's around. There's a horse in the hospital. <laughs> Sorry, unexpected John Mulaney right there. It wasn't just her doing espionage. She had a whole network of over a dozen agents, and they had five stations to and from which they would relay information. It stretched out from her mansion to the headquarters of General George H. Sharp, who was commander of the Bureau of Military Intelligence. So she really had the ear of people in high places. The thing about those agents is we don't know anything about the individuals, aside from a little bit about Mary Bowser slash Denman, because she was so damn good at keeping secrets when she needed to, so she kept their identities protected. Even... After the war, she had her own records from the War Department destroyed so that her neighbors would not find out what she'd been doing and would not have proof. I don't want to move, guys. Yeah. <laughs> I've got this whole house. It's got a lot of... Look, I got a horse in the library, and I, he's really he really seems to enjoy it there, you know? I don't know if it's the comfort of having books around you or what, but I, just, I don't want to uproot him, you know? He's, he's comfortable. He's happy. She took in the commandant of the prison, like I said. She said, once I went to Jefferson Davis himself to see if we could not obtain some protection. He was in cabinet session, but I saw Mr. Jocelyn, his private secretary. He told me I had better apply to the mayor. 
Captain George Gibbs had succeeded Todd as keeper of the prisoners. So perilous had our situation become that we took him and his family to board with us. They were certainly a great protection. Such was our life. So she's literally inviting the enemy into her home as protection. <laughs> it's a brave move. Well, she's, she's brilliant, though. She really is. Yeah, there was the secret room in her house, but there was also a secret spot on the mantelpiece where messages could be left and then retrieved. Like the mantelpiece and, you know, probably like one of the main parlors or something like that. And so, they, yeah, they had to be... I'm, I'm sure they were careful all around, but as soon as they brought in the... The, the captain, who was the keeper of the prisoners, had to be extra super careful. Yeah, she did have secret rooms, or at least one secret room, and would help prisoners escape, house them in the secret room, and then take in, she would also take in Union secret agents who were bearing information or coming to pick up messages. Despite all these precautions, really, the Confederacy did seem to know or at least suspect all of the espionage. They tried to trap her multiple times. They There was one story where... A, a man was following her, and he said a word that sounded like it could be a secret password or a passphrase. And she kind of, her instincts kicked in. And when he said it a second time, she, was, she just fled. She was like, no. And the very next day, she saw that man in a Confederate uniform parading past her house along with his compatriots. So good instincts are <laughs> very important, too. See, I could never be a spy. I have horrible instincts, <laughs> terrible instincts. They lead me astray all the time. I could like, I don't know you, and you sound like you like cornbread. <laughs> 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 so, yeah, they tried to trap, trap her, but she always caught on and slipped the traps. But it was a constant source of anxiety, just never knowing if the next day would be her last day of being able to help. So then there was the Colonel Dahlgren incident. So Colonel Ulrich Dahlgren of the Union Army was doing a raid on Richmond, and he was killed in the process. He was only 22, and this just really speaks to how people operated back then. He already had just one leg after Gettysburg. <laughs> he's 22, he's got one leg, and he's like, well, let's, let's raid Richmond. Yeah, sure. Me limp on over here. I mean, it didn't work very well for him, but... <laughs> so the rebels had buried him, but when they found out he'd been on his way to kill Jefferson Davis, president of the Confederacy, they dug him back up, mutilated his corpse, and set his body up for public viewing at the railway station. Now, to his credit, Jefferson Davis actually ordered the body reburied because he was like, this is, this is a little uncouth, guys. Just, just a bit. I don't think they did ever find his wooden leg and the little finger of his left hand. Yeah, yeah, I don't think they found those things. When, when, when his family eventually got his body, it was still not in, entirely there. You know somebody kept that finger as a trophy. You know oh, somebody yeah. did. Oh, yeah, it's probably still getting passed down generation to generation. <laughs> yeah, oh, God. So the thing is, is that when Elizabeth Van Loo heard about this, she was determined to find the body. And she got information on where the second burial had happened. So they went out, they dug up the body, and they found a new burial spot that the rebels didn't know about until such point in time as the Dahlgren family could retrieve it. But here's kind of a funny bit about this. Either the Dahlgren family didn't know that Van Lu had performed this little act of, of charity for them, mercy, whatever we want to call it, or they had to put up a front. They sent like a hundred bucks to Jefferson Davis in an attempt to get their son's body back. So Davis was like, okay, sure. You know, I money's money. And he sent men to dig him up, and the grave was empty. So I like to imagine all these Confederate soldiers being like, crap, is there a zombie <laughs> with one leg? I swear to God, we put him here. <laughs> I know, right? This is the spot. It's right under the oak tree. What the hell? So, yeah. Maybe it was a birch tree. <laughs> Maybe it was a birch tree from the tiny, yes. Oh, <laughs> sad. So then there was another incident in which 13 men were accused of piracy and tried, convicted, and sentenced to hanging. They claimed they were Confederate privateersmen. This was all in the North. So then they had to be considered prisoners of war and therefore treated as such. They probably just committed piracy and then they were using, like, saying, like, oh, no, we're with the Confederate Army. You have to, you can't just hang us. You have to treat us as prisoners of war, blah, blah, blah. And so the Confederate arm government was like, okay, we'll take 13 of your Union officers uh, it, that we have at Libby Prison. We'll toss them into the dungeon. If you hang our 13, 
then there go 13 years. So I guess you better think about that. Elizabeth Van Loo brought those 13 union officers aid and word from their families in Boston and helped them until their situation was settled. One of those men was Colonel Paul Revere, grandson of, I'm, I'm sure you can't guess, George Washington. No, Paul Revere. I feel like after you have that name in your family, you're going to have to have a kid named Paul. It pretty much is required. I mean, yeah. you can't escape it. Yeah. Her brother was conscripted into the Confederate Army in 1864. I'm surprised he wasn't pulled in earlier. That really surprised me. I mean, they had, I said the numbers on both sides as far as citizenry was concerned uh, at the top of the episode. I'm, I'm just really surprised that it took like three years for them to be like, hey, able-bodied-ish. Ah, I guess she was in her 40s when the Yeah, when so he was probably older and plus the only male to, like, be there for the household. Yeah. Yeah, that could be true. Yeah. Because she was one of three, but I never found out about the third sibling. I just said her they and her brother. They never mentioned the third sibling. I know. It drove me crazy. So They're not important. Apparently not. Yeah. So he was conscripted and immediately tried to desert to the Yankees. So he fled and he was hiding out. But it just so happened that the very same day that he fled, a hundred officers escaped Libby Prison via a tunnel. So pretty much everybody was out on the lookout. So he wouldn't be able to really escape Richmond. And Elizabeth, meanwhile, I mean, she was bringing aid to her brother, but she was also housing many of the escaped officers in the secret room in her house until the coast was clear. So she goes home. And she talks to her housemate, General Winder, you know, head of the prison. And he actually, this guy was really, he really was kind of a big help to her. He tried to get her brother declared unfit for service. And when that didn't work, he got John Van Loo into his own regiment to protect him. But eventually John Van Loo managed to finish his desertion plans and he did end up uh, in in the Union Army. So it's funny that... General Winder's like, okay, just 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 put him in my in my regiment. It'll all be fine. I'll protect him. And John Vinley was like, cool, thanks. Two weeks later, he's like, I'm gonna go. I'm out. I'm out. Peace. Bye. See you on the other side. <laughs> right. Uh. Oh, that was beautiful. That was well done. Thank you. <laughs> and it was said as the war came to a close and the Union Army Army. Union. I like it. The Union Army. We're going with it. We're running with it. As they came to retake Richmond, Confederate soldiers planned to burn down Elizabeth Van Loo's house. They even came prepared to burn it. And she just came out and said, hey, you burn my house, I'll burn every single one of yours. And guess what? I know where each one of you bastards lives. <laughs> so I can do that. And so they just kind of were like... All right. I think she would. I think she, I kind of think she would, yeah. So then the Union came, they took the city, and they went looking for her, but she wasn't home because uh, she was at the Capitol building, which had been deserted, searching through the documents to make sure nobody got a chance to destroy anything that the U.S. government might need. <laughs> so even when you think you might be able to just, like, sit back and relax, like, okay, I can rest now. She's like, nope, I'm going to make sure that nobody destroys any important documents, which I I might do that too. I would do that because I'm kind of like that now. Like I I like information and the more information I have, the happier I am. Yeah, I'm the same way. I have a folder in my filing cabinet named cats that has all of their vet receipts. (laughs) So... I just like stalk people for fun, so. You do. I do. (laughs) After the war, she went through some hardship for a while uh, after having spent all her money on freeing slaves prior to the war and her espionage activities during, so she was pretty broke. And here's actually another quote from, from her diary. I have suffered for necessary food. I have not one cent in the world. I have stood the brunt alone of a persecution that I believe no other person in the country has endured who has not been Ku Kluxed. I honestly think that the government should see that I was sustained. And she has a point. She did all this unpaid to help the union. And then afterwards, I mean, she gets a little bit of help and we'll get into that. But for the most part, like in the immediate aftermath, they're just like, all right, 
um, you go do your thing. Now, like this is what she said of her fellow Richmonders. I am held in contempt and scorn by the narrow-minded men and women of my city for my loyalty, socially living as utterly alone in the city of my birth as if I spoke a different language. Oh, wow. Yeah, we have a, quite a few quotes about her her feelings on the treatment that she got in, in Richmond. Uh, one is, no one will walk with us on the street. No one will go with us anywhere. And it grows worse and worse as the years roll on. Another one, I live as entirely distinct from the citizens as if I were plague-stricken. Rarely, very rarely, is our doorbell ever rung. September 1875, my mother was taken from me by death. We had not friends enough to be pallbearers. That is rough. And then she also hated when people called her a spy. I do not know how they can call me a spy serving my own country within its recognized borders. For my loyalty, am I now to be branded as a spy by my own country for which I was willing to lay down my life? Is that honorable or honest? God knows. There was one thing I wanted to go back to. I thought it was interesting from the, the quote I had earlier where the I believe no other person in the country has endured who has not been Ku Kluxed. We think that we in like the mid 2000s inventing the verbing of nouns, but apparently not. Nope. <laughs> That's apparently very old. She she may have invented that. Maybe. Yeah, she was a very bright woman. I will happily give her credit. Sure, yeah. So in 1869, she did get a little help. Now President Grant appointed her postmistress of Richmond at a 1200 per year salary. That's 24500 today. And uh, she kept the job until 1877, when the next president did not renew her service. And then it's a little kind of hazy what happened. There's a possibility that she managed to get a clerkship at the post office in D.C., but she was earning the lowest salary possible and kept that for two years until there was an editorial in a northern paper that called her a troublesome relic and said, we draw the line at Miss Van Lu." So after that, she would just hand it in her resignation and went home. She was like, fine, you draw the line, I'll uh, drop my resignation papers. All righty. It was a rough life after the war, and even when she was asked direct questions about her actions during the war, she still kept mom. She would not speak of those actions. But she really did need some help. So eventually she turned to the family of Colonel Paul Revere for help. And there were also other Boston families. As soon as she turned to his family, like he basically got up sort of a meeting of the families of other Boston soldiers whom she'd helped. And they all got together and basically did a little like GoFundMe. Yeah, it was <laughs> the know? first GoFundMe. She invented that too. Yes, we're going to give her credit for everything. This bitch invented the wheel. <laughs> she might have, you don't yeah. know. She definitely invented horses in libraries. Yes, absolutely. And so uh, they helped her out a lot. When she died in 1900, she was 82 years old. She didn't even have money for a funeral. So those union officers' families stepped up again and funded her funeral and her burial. She is buried in Shaco Hill Cemetery in Richmond. There's a bronze tablet on a boulder there that reads, Elizabeth L. Van Lu, 1818 to 1900. She risked everything that is dear to man. Friends, fortune, comfort, health, life itself, all for the one absorbing desire of her heart, that slavery might be abolished and the union preserved. This boulder from the Capitol Hill in Boston is a tribute from Massachusetts friends. I think that's very wonderful to have that remembrance of her. Now, a lot of these quotes that we've read throughout this, when we say it's from her diary, uh, those weren't available during her lifetime. She kept it buried in the backyard. Yeah, <laughs> like a true spy. Exactly. And she didn't tell anybody about it until it was probably like the next to last sentence she spoke before she died. Like, oh, by the way, uh, under the oak tree. Everything's under the oak tree. In this Everything's so, under the oak tree. Everything's under the oak tree. Under the oak tree. Find my diary. I wrote a lot of stuff about stuff that I did, but I don't want to talk about it. In 1993, she was inducted into the Military Intelligence Hall of Fame. I love that. I love that, too. I have one final quote that's actually from an unpublished manuscript that she'd written. 
someone uh, found this statement while they were going through it after her death, and it really, it's beautiful writing, and it also hits you. It hits you right there. So, if I am entitled to the name of spy because I was in the Secret Service, I accept it willingly. But it will hereafter have, to my mind, a high and honorable signification. For my loyalty to my country, I have two beautiful names. Here I am called traitor, farther north a spy, instead of the honored name of faithful. I think the quote itself is beautiful and also the sentiment behind it that she finally accepted that it doesn't matter what other people call you, it matters how you define yourself. And so she decided to redefine those words for herself to mean what she felt they should mean. And, what she, and that, that, I think, is a, is a true testament to, to her character and her individualness and just the kind of, the kind of mind she had. So I really, I really admire that. I do have one quote about her. This is from William Rasmussen, who is the lead curator at the Virginia Historical Society, that she is considered the most successful federal spy of the war. Wow. Damn. Yeah, and I was like, go, that's my girl. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I really admire her. It's, it's nice to do an episode occasionally about somebody that you admire, you know. We don't always get that. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that is Elizabeth Van Lu, and we hope you enjoyed that. And we have a shout-out this week to new patron, Jessica Machiarelli. I'm really enjoying that patrons are having names that I can sing in the standard uh, Sources Very Wildly <laughs> format. It really helps, let me tell you. Not that that should discourage you from becoming a patron if it doesn't fit. That just gives me a challenge, and I appreciate a challenge. So, uh, yeah, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter, and you have all kinds of uh, media related to the case. We're going to put up that secret cipher. I have a couple other things that I found that are in a folder in my computer. <laughs> and I screenshotted them and then promptly forgot what they were. And so if you want to see some media related to the case, or if you just want to come over and say, hi, how you doing? We appreciate that as well. If you have any questions about the show or uh, any suggestions for cases we should cover or just... I feel like some people think, oh, well, they have a long list. They have a lot of stuff that they're thinking of. But the thing is, is that we want to talk about what you want to hear, you know? So if you have a particular case that you'd like us to cover, even if you think like, oh, they probably have it on our li on their list, come tell us. Or you can also email us at oldtimeycrimey at gmail.com. I'm not going to lie to you. Christy has a list. <laughs> I do not. Blank canvas right here. <laughs> Give it to me, guys. Give it to me. <laughs> That, that should be isolated as a ringtone. <laughs> it might be now. It might be, yeah. Give it to me! <laughs> Give it to me! So, yeah, and all of that. We also have an Amazon wish list that I link in the show notes every time. And there's a list of books there that we would be happy to read if you just, you know, buy us a copy. And so you can determine what uh, we talk about in that way and also help support the show. That is correct. We are for sale. We are for sale. Um, uh, our faces are for sale over on Redbubble and other quotes from the show and other merchandise. Redbubble.com slash oldtimeycrimey. Drink from my cup. <laughs> yes. Drink from our cup. Rate, review, subscribe on uh, whatever podcast app you're on if they allow that. Uh, or, you know, like I know on Spotify, you can follow and get notified of new episodes. Do that and Spotify will tell you about 36 hours after the episode releases. As I've discovered, it's not... They'll get there. They'll get there. <laughs> so yeah, I think that's all my bullshit. Okay, Amber, what are you doing this week? I have um, a test to take and a project to do and house inspections. And um, I'm still trying to, to pack the things and do all the things, too many things, all the things. Mm. How about you? Um, well, I mean, sad times. I have a funeral to go to and like about... 12 hours. But at least that's on topic <laughs> with true crime, I guess. I mean, there's no crime involved. It was a very natural death. So uh, but That's what they all say. <laughs> he was, uh, he, it's, a, it's a relative of my husband's and he was a very uh, 
smart, erudite, learned man, and uh, he made it to 97 years old, which is super impressive. Damn impressive. So, yeah. Too bad Paul Revere's family is not paying for the funeral. <laughs> yes. So, we will be uh, celebrating his, his life and all of his accomplishments tomorrow. And then uh, the rest of the week, uh, I'm going to continue my Unsolved Mysteries binge, to be honest. I mean, we kind of sometimes just have it on as background noise. (laughs) I can't do that because it's it's too much of my childhood to not sit in front of the TV on the floor, like holding a pillow. Yes, I know. I do have a hard time because it doesn't matter what chore I'm doing. If there is a, like, lost relatives, like, when they reunite, like, children who are all adopted out or anything like that, every single time when there's an update and they actually reunite, it gives me such chills. I think those are my favorite. (laughs) Well, and, you know, I actually have a lost brother, so I understand this very well. It's been um, well over 10 years Mm -hmm. since anyone's heard from him. Uh, So I I get that a lot because I still, like, I'm pretty sure I'm going to road trip and try to find him. And I bet he's a criminal, so maybe we'll do a podcast about it. There you go. <laughs> or you two will team up and be brother-sister criminals on a spree. Yes! <laughs> Robbing all the banks, stealing all the buses. <laughs> <laughs> all the buses. All the buses. So, uh, from us here at Old Timey Crimey, we would like to thank you for listening to our filthy words. And uh, we will see you next week. Uh, bye. Bye. My sources this week are Kate Lindbury on the Smithsonian Mag, Mike Gorman, Civil War Richmond, the American Civil War website. Uh, I found the whole entire case via Hist Prof Dave on the Ask Historians subreddit. The National Park Service, the Intelligence Knowledge Network, Kimberly J. Largent on Ohio State University, William Gilmore Baymar, Baymar on Harper's Monthly via Civil War Richmond, Lois Levine on The Atlantic and The New York Times via newspapers.com. Thank you, Chris Garcia. My sources this week are also smithsonianmag.com by Caitlin Berry, nps.gov, history.com by Thad Morgan, legendsofamerica.com, and theguardian.com by David Smith.